Welcome, I'm Sirius Afshar, and this is the Wigo's Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. In this podcast, we will discuss some of the most pressing issues related to the linkages between informal economy and social protection, including debates around workers' health provision, pension schemes for older workers, as well as childcare systems and other social protection policies for informal workers in order to improve their livelihoods. And in this month, we will dive into the topic of Universal Basic Income, or UBI. In South Africa, the government has recently announced the intention of implementing this policy in the country, which was regarded as a very important step to help us understand more about the Universal Basic Income, its debates, and how is this taking place in the South African context, we invited Isabel Fry. Isabel is the director of the Studies in Poverty and Inequality Institute. She's also a commissioner at the National Minimum Wage Commission, and she's a civil society representative at South Africa's National Development Economic Council, a body responsible for the introduction of economic policies in South Africa, where this debate is also taking place. And now, let's hear our talk with Isabel Fry. Isabel Fry, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Sirius. Okay, Isabel, let's dive right in. The topic of today's podcast, universal basic income. What is universal basic income and what it is not? Can you mention any of the strengths and weaknesses of such policy approach? Absolutely. And it's a really good idea to start with this question, because I think many people use the term universal basic income or basic income grant, meaning different things. And that's led to some global differences as to what a basic income is. So the way that I define it and the way that people who belong to the Basic Income Earth Network define it is that a universal basic income is regular monthly payment of cash to individuals as an entitlement. So what it is not is a means-tested or targeted grant. It is not a household endowment, and it is also not paid in kind, as some social assistance is. So in terms of the strengths and weaknesses of such a policy approach, to my analysis, the point going forward to the heart of it is paying it to an individual rather than a household means that you are avoiding risking the vulnerable people within a household not accessing the benefits of the grant. In terms of household distributions, power relations generally determine who has access and who doesn't. So paying to individuals means that you provide greater security for more vulnerable people in a household. By paying cash rather than in kind, you enable individuals and people grouped around the payment to prioritize what is important for them. So whether the in-kind is a specific kind of input, such as agricultural seed, whether in-kind is through some kind of voucher system, that generally restricts people's ability to choose what their needs are. And that we find to be incredibly patronizing because people's agency is built around their decision-making ability. So that's another of the strengths of the policy. 
In terms of the universal nature, in other words, not a categorized or targeted system, uh, the benefit of that is that firstly, you avoid the administrative costs of means testing. You also avoid the stigma that attaches to more vulnerable people receiving social assistance if it's targeted or means tested. You avoid areas of exclusion when people who are in need of assistance somehow don't manage to navigate the obstacles to proving eligibility. And you also increase the multiplier impact in terms of ensuring that the demand shock is greater when you have more people accessing. So you don't have the dilution of the benefit through the more narrow sense of targeting. Uh, now, universal basic income has been on the spotlight over the past few months with the pandemic, being advocated for sectors from the right and from the left as well. Why does this happen? What are the potentials and the risks of adopting an universal basic income as a policy to protect informal workers? It's, it's an interesting phenomenon that both people from the right and from the left support a basic income. And for many reasons, that's located in the fact that I said at the beginning that you have different definitions and understandings of universal income. So in terms of the principles advocated from the left, what a basic income seeks to do is to provide a solidaristic safety net, which ensures that people don't fall below a certain minimum, but it also provides an ability for people to work towards a more solid future. It provides an ability for people to negotiate wages from a better point of negotiation forum. It enables vulnerable spouses in, in abusive relationships to have some kind of support or safety net. So it basically frees people to reach their full potential rather than ensuring that they are harnessed to some form of financial patronage, whether it's through work or through personal relationships. People from the right, however, and many have advocated this from Milton Friedman and his successors, see this as an opportunity to proceed to reduce the size of the state. So while for many people from the left, income support is seen as one of the parts of the social wage itself, for people on the right, it's seen as a substitute. So if you give people cash, you don't need to provide services at the state. So the thinking goes encourage people to purchase services from the marketplace. So it's for people on the right, it's about reducing state, the role of the state. For the left, it's about enhancing people's freedoms. And though if you want to play with semantics, you can make it sound like those two are the same thing, but it's incredibly different if you look at the underlying principles. So with regards to the potential risks of adopting a UBI to protect informal workers, it's fascinating how people are able to understand this according to where they are themselves. What I benefited from is attending uh, two years ago the Basic Income Earth Network conference, which was in Finland. Um, and a lot of these arguments were put forward, especially from trade union movements and workers' movements, that to some extent worker federations are suspicious of something which is a universal transfer because it's seen as undermining the power of bargaining councils and other established fora. I think for informal workers, the question is also always the issue of association or organization that workers are in. I see many benefits for informal workers of a UBI. I think that risks might involve 
the points that federations of informal workers might not be recognized in terms of having any centralized bargaining power if governments say that they don't need to negotiate for certain minimal supports uh, because there is access to a UBI. But um, generally, I think that it would be uh, an enhancement, uh, a social safety net for informal workers. Um, I mean, what we're seeing in South Africa is that we're currently negotiating the adoption of a national social security fund. And for many federations of informal workers, it's a big question about how they're getting left out of such policies because they are not represented. So I think a universal basic income could be seen as providing a definite entitlement that would give people the gap between destitution when they are not working and some form of guaranteed income. Now that you mentioned South Africa, there has been a recent announcement of South African governments on the intention of implementing a basic income. Can you tell us more about how the debate on UBI is going on in South Africa to get to such an important point? And how likely do you think is the government to implement this? Could you tell us more about the UBI in South Africa moving forward after this announcement that they, they are considering implementing it? Sure, sir. So, yes, there was a recent announcement by the Minister of Social Development of the intention of the state to implement basic income. This, however, is not a new debate in South Africa. So, as many of your listeners will know, the South African democratic state was formulated in 1994 after generations of apartheid and, and colonialism. So, that for us was a critical point and it led to the uh, adoption, 1996, two years later, of one of the most progressive constitutions in the world. One of the reasons it's so progressive is that it guarantees justiciable socioeconomic rights. So in other words, people have a right to go to court to enforce them. In terms of Section 27.1c of the Constitution, people are guaranteed a right of access to social security and social assistance for those who aren't able to provide for themselves. What we've seen in South Africa is we have quite an expanded social security system. It, however, is based on historically a system that protected white South Africans under apartheid, where jobs were guaranteed for working age white men. And so our social security system has a huge hole in the middle. There is no social security for people aged 18 to 59. So we have social security means-tested grants for children, means-tested grants for old-age pensioners, and we have a limited form of social insurance for people who've contributed as formal sector workers, but nothing for people in the informal economy or for people who are unemployed. Now, in South Africa, we have an unemployment rate of just under 40%. That's expanded. That was by March 2020. And since then, in April, already we know that 3 million additional jobs were lost. So we have a huge and growing number of unemployed working age people for whom there's no income support. So the question of a basic income is critical to the livelihoods and well-being of many people. The issue of a basic income was the subject of a ministerial committee of inquiry in the early 2000s that was called for by Organized Labour Federation, KSATU after a 1998 presidential job summit. And, and, and this committee of inquiry was tasked to look at how you fill the gaps of the how you provide for a comprehensive social security system. And one of the main recommendations came, that came up from this report was a basic income grant. So that was way back in 2002. 
we had civil society and, and social movements in favor of it and also the trade union preparations, but it was never something that was adopted by the ruling party. Instead, the ruling party opted to support a public works program, basically sweat equity, in terms of which very few people, because of the cost of the program, were able to get public works jobs, such as picking up litter, for a limit of between three to six months. So it certainly was no equivalent to the, the, the freedoms that I described in my definition of the UBI. Eight years ago, within the National Economic Development and Labour Council, the social dialogue platform of which I'm part, the basic income was reintroduced as a topic of negotiation linked to a comprehensive social security system. And we have been very slow in terms of making progress. We're currently looking at some research reports that were commissioned, but it is on the agenda from that perspective. So NEDLAC is made up of representatives from government, organized labor, business, and civil society. And that's why to have something being considered by NEDLAC means that it is on the national agenda. When government announced lockdown, they also in April announced that they would uh, implement a 500 billion rand stimulus package. And as part of that, they would provide income support for people who either whose income had been taken away through the lockdown and who didn't fall into the formal unemployment insurance fund. So particularly informal workers, as well as people who are unemployed. It, it's been a big problem around getting people registered for this support, which is known as social relief of distress, um, because these are people who formerly were not on any central registry of government in terms of receipt of grants. There have also been massive areas of exclusion because this is very particularly means tested. And what we've seen is that the majority of recipients have actually been men, because one of the grounds of exclusion is that you are not meant to be receiving a grant on behalf of any of the children as a proxy grant recipient, as a caregiver. So it's been really important, this most recent announcement and activity of the social relief of distress, because it broke through the barrier that thought that you should not be giving income to working age people. This age old notion of the undeserving poor was something which statistically you could see made no sense given the high levels of unemployment and yet policymakers were adamant that working age people should not get money for free. So by banning the category of social relief of distress to working age adults, however flawed it is, I think it's a critical breakthrough of moving towards universal basic income. It is categorized and it is exceedingly exclusionary, as I've said, but it is, it's enabling people to envision something different. Now, the announcement by the Minister of Social Development of the implementation of the basic income was not something that a lot of people within government were expecting to hear. The response given by the minister was based on a number of the presentations that have been given by two different government departments. There has been no broad endorsement of this by National Treasury, who say that they just not the funds to do to adopt this. Yet it is also a topic that is being thoroughly debated, I'd say heatedly, within the ruling party. So it is, I think, one of the most important social reform items on South Africa's agenda right now. I don't think that the full extent of the importance of either adopting or not adopting a basic income in the current state of the destruction to our economy, which was already an economy which didn't feed or meet the basic needs of the majority of people where we currently are now.
Mm. That's one point, uh, one common objection made by critics of UBI is that it's unaffordable, especially in developing countries. Is it possible to finance such programs in South Africa? That is a very common objection, as you say. <laughs> From my own research and involvement in advocacy around the basic income grant for decades, it seems that this is an objection that many right-wing orthodox economists wish to hide behind. In South Africa, for instance, uh, we were told in the early 2000s that it was unaffordable, even though at that time, for two successive fiscal years, we had a fiscal surplus. So we now get the story that because we have a budget deficit, we are not able to afford it. And yet in terms of site surplus, we were given the same excuse. Some of the work that we've been doing recently, sir, is in, in terms of looking more deeply into basic income feasibility is to look at the financing. I think it's important to acknowledge that they are gross costs and they net costs. So the gross cost would be what you put on the budget sheet, but the net cost is what the total is after you have taken people off who are receiving other grants, for instance, maybe, or you've clawed back through the tax system. So for instance, Again, in South Africa, many conservative economists are saying that our personal income tax and our company's tax is not able to embrace the cost. And yet the same economists are not looking at increasing our wealth tax as a space to have this as a redistributive mechanism. There are other ways of financing it as well, such as looking at carbon taxation, which is a much more sort of green transition source of financing and something that a lot of heterodox economists have been looking at uh, across the world in this current stage is looking at quantitative easing in terms of monetary policy. So from my own viewpoint, I mean, the cost always, of course, looks at how much you give per grant, what the, the actual value of the grant is. But there's certainly ways in which the co initial costs can be met. The other point that's really important to remember is that something like universal basic income is designed to have multiplier benefits. So in other words, the demand that a greater cash distribution has, has a multiplier of about 1.7, 1.2 to 1.7, depending on your economy. So because there's more cash circulating, that gives more oxygen to any economy breathed to circulate and therefore it stimulates the demand. If you can ensure that you've got an industrial policy or trade policy that seeks to promote localized production of goods. You can also ensure that you harness employment um, and also input taxes in terms of the whole production chain. So it shows a very simplistic approach to say that it's, it's a gross cost once and for all. Um, our view is that there are many benefits which can go into making it affordable. You also have to remember that to advance investment in human capital, such as through nutrition and education, means that the drawdowns on state coffers as people get older and more likely to have nutritional sort of design diseases, diabetes, etc., are going to be a lot less. So the benefit needs to be weighed up against the cost rather than just the cost itself. So in South Africa, there has been a large state corruption scandals over the last 10 years or so. Do you think this may impact on the effective implementation of a basic income? Yeah, it's a very sad state of affairs and we're still reeling from the 
impact that that has had on our, our young democracy. Answering your question, I, I'd look at it in two broad aspects. The first is, has the corruption taken away available resources that the state would have had to pay for the basic income? I think it is without a doubt that the impact of the corruption has had a negative effect on cumulative economic growth. So whether or not it was because it might have built into a monopolistic support for a few companies rather than expanding state supports, which would have generated more jobs, or whether it was because the delivery mechanisms of the corrupt contracts was poor, which led to the closing down of many businesses. Corruption certainly eroded that base capacity to meet the costs of a basic income grant. It also, however, had a negative effect on people's trust and faith in the state administering large funds. So if you look, for instance, at the potential source of, of financing uh, that has been spoken about, such as the Government Employees Pension Fund or the basically the PIC, which is the Public Investment Corporation, there is a huge concern that if you take monies out of carefully controlled funds and feed them through government systems, that they would be likely to still be um, susceptible to being stolen. Whereas there might have been a far greater appreciation of the state providing grants to, pe to everybody, uh, it may well be that people think that they don't trust the state to administer a national cash transfer system. So definitely, uh, for those two reasons, it is an unavoidable conclusion that the, the corruption will have impacted on the possibility of this scheme being adopted, as it has on so many aspects of states' interface with people's lives. Mm. And where and how do you see um, informal workers in South Africa benefiting from such policy? Currently, there's very little protection for informal workers in South Africa, and particularly in terms of any kind of income support. In my view, um, and from my awareness and, and knowledge of this lens or situation, firstly, it would provide income, a guaranteed income to people themselves who are involved in the informal economy. So meeting their basic needs, particularly important for informal workers when for instance, street traders are not able to trade because of bad weather and, and people have no designated professional insurance against lack of, of income. So uh, that's the primary sense and that people and their families as well. The slightly broader uh, circle of benefit to my mind is that they have more consumers, more, more customers that can benefit their informal activity because you have far more people who will have additional income. So sort of spending power because of the distribution of cash through a universal basic income. For most people in South Africa, for instance, there is no more disposable income. People are so constrained in their poverty and their hunger that they have no money to, to purchase anything additional to absolute basic uh, survival. So you create a, a massive market or demand uh, in that way. In addition to that, however, um, for many informal workers, there is benefit to be had becoming more included in formal activities within the economy. And by registering people to receive on a central registry to receive a basic income, it means that people are one step closer to being able to benefit from some of the additional support that states provide to SMMEs 
therapeutica operatives and which people could then benefit in terms of their own informal activity. Mm. And many advocates of UBI frame it in terms of constitutional rights, whether, whereas others argue that this is rather a type of poverty alleviation policy. What, what is your view on this question? It's, it's an interesting question, Cyrus, in terms of the assumptions behind the question. So I think if you were to ask that question in a developed country and other income country, there would be some confusion because people would say it's not a poverty alleviation policy, it's a basic entitlement. And if you look, for instance, at the grant for children in the UK, that was for many decades a universal entitlement, and it went to households that were rich as well as those that were poor. So when that question is asked, poverty alleviation policies are generally for developing countries. And so in a way, you get a completely different narrative. In developing countries, most people are seen to receive small benefits, kind of um, the, the, the leftovers. So you have targeted programs that reach the most vulnerable. And as a result of that, the most vulnerable remain vulnerable because there's no structural ways of bringing people out of poverty. To my mind, in our country, because we've got such a strong constitution, I've always seen it as a constitutional right and entitlement, so a matter of that belongs to the commons, uh, the income of the country. Um, however, I also see that it is important that, that one of the effects would be in terms of alleviating poverty, both the primary way, as I said, by, by distributing income directly into households and by creating that massive multiplier through the additional consumption. I think it is important that development economists are able to see the rights base to the claim so that it's not just a pure accounting exercise. I think also that people who see it purely in terms of rights need to acknowledge the benefits and strengthening their arguments of the economic impact on alleviating destitution and poverty. And often inequality, if the, depending on the design of the scheme, if there's sufficient redistribution of income from the wealthy to the poor through the revenue system, it can also alleviate extreme income and wealth inequality as well. One last question. In some countries such as Mexico, there has been a talk of guaranteed minimal income. Has there been any discussion of this in the South African context? I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about a variety of different policies and um, programs in South Africa. The idea of a guaranteed minimum income is very frequently linked to a job guarantee scheme. And in that sense, it requires a huge bureaucracy of people to ensure that jobs exist and that people who are in need of income are linked to a job to enable that payment of the guaranteed income to be released. I was talking to a well-known advocate of basic income last week, Guy Standing, and he also cautioned against the displacement uh, dangers of a work-based guaranteed minimum income because people need to be provided with jobs. There is a displacement of existing workers out of those jobs in a sense where the private sector is able to receive tax breaks because they've guaranteed jobs. It means that they would be more likely to displace existing low-paid, low-skilled workers with people that they receive tax breaks for in terms of a guaranteed minimum income job scheme. So 
I think that from my own perspective, the idea of linking it to a border scheme like that is firstly very costly, it's very time consuming. Uh, many people are not able to meet the criteria. For instance, if you're looking after your young children, if there's care work that you link to, you're not free to be able to provide the kind of sweat work that's required to be eligible for a guaranteed minimum income. I think that the idea of a guaranteed income through a universal basic income grant is a far greater guarantee that anything that, than anything that's linked to expectations. Um, and, and certainly in the South African context, I mean, the, the other point that is often identified is that if there are people who need to be selected to be included in some of these schemes, the risk of patronage creeps in where people are identified by community leaders as, as being uh, the, the ones who nominated for the job. They generally tend to link into, in some way to the leadership and their circles around there. So we went back to Thomas Paine, who was speaking about this in the 18th century. Uh, minimum income through a universal basic income grant that can rise as the national income rises, I think is a much more direct way of supporting people's dignity and enabling people to have some form of protection of their needs, whether you're in the informal or the formal economy. Well, Isabel Fry, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. And if you want to learn more about universal basic income and how this is taking place in South Africa and the relation to informal workers, we will leave some links at the description of the episode. Don't forget to subscribe our podcast on Apple, Teacher, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. And please follow Weagle on Twitter and Facebook to get the latest updates on our research publications, advocacy campaigns to support informal workers in their struggle to improve their livelihoods. I am Sirius Afshar and this was the Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. See you next time.